uh, this morning. We will be continuing our way through the gospel according to John. Uh, Last week, uh, we heard the story of of Nicodemus and uh, where Jesus reminds and tells Nicodemus about this incredible thing called the new birth. The new birth and this new birth, in order for this new birth to come, Jesus says, the Son of Man must be lifted up. And as we approach our text this morning, it's almost as though there's a question left unanswered is, why must the Son of Man be lifted up? Why must that occur? And John's going to tell us this morning why the Son of Man must be lifted up. Let's read it now. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people have loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word, even... Words that are so familiar to us, would they come alive before us this morning? Would we know this day of your great love? Would you speak to us through your word, through the power of the Spirit? We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, some of you this morning, if you actually have Bibles in front of you or your screens or whatever, you you may um, actually have a red-letter version in front of you. And what do those red-letter versions show you? They're they're meant to show you who is speaking, right? And in particular, if it's in red letters, it's Jesus speaking. And even if you don't have that, um, you may have quotation marks. Quotation marks, even as we have in the ESV this morning. But you may have also heard, you may not have noticed it. But I said that these were the words of John, the apostle. And yet these words, if you have a red letter version in front of you this morning, they are in red. Or they're in, there are parentheses, or not parentheses, but quotation marks. That's them um, around them uh, this morning. And so what do we do? Why, Why do I say that these are probably the words of the apostle John? In the original text, in the Greek, we don't want to go too deep here. But there, there is no, nothing to tell us when someone starts speaking and when someone stops speaking. So when you see quotation marks in your Bible, you see the red letters, that's just a judgment is being made as to when that starts. In fact, there's a footnote, if you have an ESV, that says some interpreters hold that the quotation ends at verse 15. Um, I'm no interpreter, but I guess I'm one of those people. And actually, it seems as though the majority of commentators today believe that that Jesus' speech with Nicodemus actually ends at verse 15. And what we have here, starting in verse 16, is the Apostle John's commentary, if you will. He's, he's explaining more of what's going on to help us to understand things. And this is actually 
what we see John doing many times, and we'll see him do it in the gospel. We'll, we'll, in fact, see him do it next week whenever John the Baptist speaks. John the Baptist will speak, and then we're going to see clarification remarks, if you will, from the pen of John the Apostle. Now, why would we think this? There's several reasons, and these, the, the words that are used here, they, they just almost scream as you think of it and study it more. They scream of the Apostle John. They just sound so much like him. Jesus doesn't often refer to God as God. He refers to his Father. So that right off the bat is a little bit unusual for us. He doesn't usually refer to himself as Son of God. He refers to himself as Son of Man. He never refers to himself as the only Son and light. That, that light that we're going to be talking about this morning, that's a theme that John loves. We've, we've actually already heard it back in, in the prologue. And, and maybe you'll see this morning as we move through that these words actually do sound a whole lot like John and sound a whole lot like John like in his epistles and whatnot. Now, having said all that, I think it makes very little difference in the way that we interpret this passage this morning, whether it's Jesus speaking or, or the apostles speaking. And we also need to understand this. If this is John speaking, it doesn't make these words any less authoritative. They are just as much God's words before us this morning, so then why do I waste the time to tell you? It's because it is no waste. It's so that you and I can, can be a little more in tune as we read the words of Scripture and, and be careful and understand that some of the things that we have in Scripture are insertions of man. And we just need to keep that in mind as we, as we read. It's an important reminder for us this morning. So we have before us uh, one of the most famous verses of all, right? Maybe the most famous verse, uh, a verse that's plastered everywhere, especially in the fall, it seems like, with all the sporting events and whatnot for God to love the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I grew up, many of you know this, I grew up in Savannah. And, and often people ask me, where are you from? And I'll say Savannah and then inevitably they'll say, oh, I love Savannah. Or, oh, I always wanted to visit Savannah. And at first, whenever, after I moved from Savannah and people started saying that, I was like, well, that's kind of weird. Why are you so excited about Savannah? It's not that special of a place. I grew up there, right? I mean, I used to be all around Savannah, everywhere. I used to work downtown, going in and out of the squares and everything, and totally missed, in a way, so often, the, the beauty of, of, of where, I, where I live. Now, as we vacation back down in Georgia, it's a fun place to go with the family and enjoy the, the things of Savannah, you know, when you live there, you don't quite understand the wonder of it. I was just, Peter was heading off to vacation, and just this past week, in fact, we were even talking, they were potentially going to make a stop in Savannah, and I was even saying, like, yeah, when, when I was living in Savannah, it's like, it's, it's just Savannah, you know? I miss the wonder of it. But whenever something becomes normal for us, sometimes it just becomes so common that we miss the wonder of things. And I think maybe we do that with this verse, for God so loved the world. Do you understand the wonder of it this morning? Martin Luther calls this passage, and, and this verse in particular, the Bible in miniature. So pregnant with meaning that it cannot be exhausted. We hear those words, so loved. So loved. Not just loved, but so loved emphasizing the intensity with which God loves. And who is it that he loves? 
God so loved the world. If you were a Jewish person in John's day and and you heard these words, you would have been ready to fill it in. For God so loved Israel. And John says the astounding. For God so loved the world. And of course, when I hear those words, I can't help but think of Conan O'Brien. Because maybe you remember whenever he lost the Tonight Show, he wrote a famous letter, and he wrote the letter, it was titled, to, to the people of earth. Now, I doubt all of the people of earth read Conan O'Brien's letter. This person, I guess, did. I may be the only one in here. But in a sense, that's what John is saying here. For God so loved the people of the earth, the whole world. And world, and John in particular, is usually talking about fallen and rebellious humanity. Yeah, Packer says that it, world, it's simply a synonym for bad men everywhere. Jesus, later in John, in, in chapter 7, is going to say the world, what? Hates me, he's going to say. Yeah, what do we see here? The wonder that God so loved the world. Yeah, Carson puts it this way. When John tells us that God loves the world far from being an endorsement for the world, it's not an endorsement for the world. It's a testimony to God's character. God's love is to be admired, not because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad. That's what makes this love so amazing. Not because the world that he loves is so big and it's so wonderful that he's able to love so many, but because the world is so bad. As Paul says in Romans 5, God shows his love for us that while we were what? Yet sinners, Christ died for us. And continuing in verse 10, for, for while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. God loves the world And this isn't like a new theme. This isn't a New Testament theme. This is the way that we see God throughout the scriptures. Whenever Moses is is leading the Israelites and they're about to go into the promised land, one of the things God tells them is, don't don't mess with the Moabites. Don't mess with the Moabites because those are the descendants of Lot. And I don't want you to harm them. Now, by the time you get to Jeremiah's day, God is done with the Moabites. He says, Moabite shall be de- the Moab shall be destroyed and no longer be a people because they magnified themselves instead of the Lord. In that same passage, you know what he says? At the same time, he's, he's talking about their destruction. Do you know what our great God says? Therefore, I wail for Moab. I cry out for all Moab. My heart moans for Moab like a flute. God's love, even for for these people he's about to destroy, God so loved the world. The point being that God does love, and it's amazing that he does, that he loves that which is unlovely. It's a pattern that we see throughout Scripture. When Moses is, is getting the people ready to go into the promised land, you know what he tells them about God's love? He tells them you. 
It, it, it was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love upon you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you. There's nothing redeeming in you, Israel. It, it's not the, that's not the reason why God chose you. He chose you because he chose to set his love upon you, not because you were good enough or smart enough. B.B. Warfield puts it this way. The world is just the synonym of all that is evil and disgusting. There is nothing in it that can attract God's love. The point of John 3.16 is not to suggest that the world is so big that it takes a great deal of love to embrace it all, but that the world is so bad that it takes a great kind of love to love it at all. And much more to love it as God has loved it when he gave his son for it. So loved the world that he gave his only son. He gave his only son for a people who were in rebellion against him. For as we read earlier, for his enemies, it's, it's astounding to think of. I mean, who of you, and please don't answer this question, who of you would give up one of your kids for an enemy? Of course, I hope the answer is, of course, none of them. But the answer is, our Father in heaven would and did. A reminder of that call of Abraham to go sacrifice his son, his, his only son, Isaac, right? And he's up there, and he's ready to go through with it. And the angel of the Lord cries out, Abraham, don't, don't, don't do it. And God provides a ram in the thicket, and Abraham didn't have to go through with it. But what does our great God do? What does our Father in heaven do? He goes through with it. He gave his only son. And so that we don't have any misunderstanding here. This giving of the only son, the, the, the son wanted to do this too. The love of the son is present here too. In Galatians 2, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the son of God who what? Who loved me and who gave himself for me. Loved. <laughs> the father so loved. The Son so loved us, the Holy Spirit so loved it, that He brings the new birth that we heard about last week. To answer that question we started with, why must the Son of Man be lifted up, as Jesus told Nicodemus? Because the Father's love demands it. Because the Father's love demands it. At the same time, let's also not miss why this world needs to be shown this kind of love to begin with. This is important. You see, John 3.16, I fear at times, can be like this feel-good verse. You know, like a cuddly warm blanket, right? Makes you feel all nice and warm inside. But I hope we'll see this morning that John 3.16 is not just mere sentimentalism like that. It's not just a feel-good verse. It says something much greater. And it's not just 
all good news for us this morning. Many of you, many years ago, a movie called The Matrix came out. Many of you have probably seen it at some point or another. There's the main character, Neo, and he doesn't realize that he's actually basically enslaved, right? He's actually entombed in this little pod where he's being used as an energy source, right? But he's living out life in like the simulated reality. He doesn't know that he's imprisoned. And then Morpheus and his team come into the picture, and and Morpheus tells him this, that you are a slave, Neo, like everyone else. You are born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch, a prison of your own mind. Neo was completely unaware of the situation that he was in, completely unaware that he was actually enslaved, unaware that he was in need of a rescue. So too, I think John's going to tell us this morning that this world that we live in is unaware of the rescue that it needs. And we begin to see it, even those first verses of uh, words of John 3.16, what does it say? Believes in him that he should not perish. If the world is perishing, it tells us something, doesn't it? That even here we we, we see that there is this need For a rescue, verse 17 helps us continuing, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The son was sent, not to condemn, he was sent to save. And we got to wonder, save from what? Why were the people perishing? Why were people perishing? Why is that a threat? What do we need saving from? And we find out in the next verse. You see, Jesus didn't need to come condemning because as we read in verse 18, what do we read? Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Those are stark words, aren't they? Whoever does not believe is condemned already. We we cannot... I'm convinced we we cannot truly understand the depths of John 3.16 without understanding this verse. Without understanding that without the Son, you stand condemned. In order to understand the good news of John 3.16, what do we need to understand? We need to understand the bad news of verse 18. Without the Son, we stand condemned. And why do we stand condemned without the Son? John goes on to tell us that a verdict has been issued against against them, starting in verse 19. And this is the judgment. Or we could just as well say this is the verdict. This is the judgment against the world against all these bad people everywhere, as as J.I. Packer said. The light has come into the world, and people have loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And here we see John revisiting themes that he, he already spoke of back in his prologue. Maybe you remember Verse 5 of the prologue, the light shines in the darkness, 
and the darkness has not overcome it. Or in verses 10 and following, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world, what? It didn't know him. He came to his own, his own people did not receive him. John's telling us here that the, the, the light has come into the world. The light has come into the world, but there's a great problem. There's a great problem that people don't believe that the light has come into the world. Now, when we hear that and we think of this, you know, whoever believes, we, we usually just think of this as like an intellectual thing. Like, people don't believe because they don't have enough information about who the Messiah is. That's not how John talks here, is it? He doesn't talk as though people aren't able to believe because they don't have enough intellectual information before them. He instead brings it to us as a moral problem, doesn't he? Their problem isn't that they, they, they can't intellectually assent that Jesus could be the Messiah. The problem is a moral one. What do they do? The people love the darkness rather than the light. They love the darkness rather than the light. They hate the light. I told you about Savannah. There's many wonderful things, but Savannah also has a very seedy side too. There's many things I could talk about with that regard, but I'll just talk about one. And this is kind of gross. Savannah um, being so, well, with its climate and on the water and all those things, there's lots of little critters of all sorts. I can remember, for instance, going to my, my grandparents' house and going and opening up the boathouse doors right there at the water, and you, you open up those doors, the lights come on, and immediately you just hear it's like a, it's like a herd of something just scattering. Cockroaches the size of huge, terrifying Mice, who knows what else would scatter? Why do they scatter? They hate the light. They don't want anything to do with the light. John here saying, and I think he's diagnosing one of our, our, our real, maybe the, the biggest problem that we have in this world is that the world what? The world loves the darkness. And the story of our world is a very sad one. It's a, a story of people who live in the darkness, but they think that it's light. They live upside down, thinking that this darkness is good, and don't understand the reality that they're living out their life in the darkness. Is that you? you love the darkness? Do you love your sin? Some of you here this morning may be those who haven't confessed faith in Christ. You, you wouldn't say that you're one of these who whoever believes in Him. And I want to ask you this morning, what is it that you really love? What is it that's really keeping you from believing in Him? Is it because you love the darkness so much? You don't want to let it go. You don't want to let your sins go. You cherish them so dearly. You convinced yourself that the darkness is so much better than the light. Is that you? Now, if you're a believer here this morning, we also need to contemplate this too because I think too often 
you and I can be drawn in by the darkness, can't we? Yes, we, we live in the light and we're, we're, we're now children of the light, but that darkness can sometimes become so attractive. And we can begin to believe the lies again that somehow that darkness is, is better for us. And we can find ourselves fleeing from the light. Now as we think about this, this hatred of the light, this loving of the darkness and therefore hating the light, we need to understand it. We need to understand it. Understand what it really means. That to love the darkness, to hate the light, is to hate Jesus himself. Jesus is going to tell us in chapter 8, I am. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, I know that seems stark. We don't like to say that. We don't like to think about that, about our loved ones who may not know Christ, right? That, that, they, that they love the darkness and, and that really they hate the light and hate Jesus himself. But we must understand that that's ultimately what it means, that that's ultimately what's underneath it. John tells us that the ways of those who walk in the darkness is what? Evil. Verse 19, wicked. Verse 20. We don't like to think about how bad it is, do we? We don't like to think about how bad the darkness is and how deceptive it is. But my friends, if we do not understand how bad it is, we cannot understand the good news of the gospel. We cannot understand John 3.16. Because if you're a believer here this morning, you need to understand this is who you were. This is who you were. As we read earlier from Romans 5, for while we were enemies, not while, while we weren't that bad or we were doing pretty good and, oh, we were being relatively religious or, no, while you were enemies, while you were living in the darkness, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. There is no good news without the bad news. God so loved the world, cannot be removed from the fact that without the Son, we are condemned. But with the Son, with the Son, we read verse 18, whoever believes in Him is not condemned. Understanding the bad news makes the good news so so much better. As Paul says in Romans, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you're a believer here this morning, if this is true of you, what does this mean then for your life? And John goes on to tell us in verse 21, he says this, but whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. 
says, whoever does what is true, or maybe better yet for us to understand a little easier, whoever practices the truth, whoever practices this, this truth, that is, whoever believes, whoever believes. And what does he do? He contrasts those who believe with those that he's been talking about who, who love the, the darkness. Now he's talking about those who have, who've come into the light. The condemned, what do they do? They love the darkness. But what do those who are not condemned do? What do those who, who believe, what, what do they do? John tells us that they, they love and they embrace the light. And he tells us all this is, of course, for a purpose. So that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Did you hear that? That these were good works, these, these good works of, of living in the light, in contrast to those of the evil and the darkness that we've talked about. How are they carried out? They're carried out in God, in him. They're not just like our own works that we've, you know, we, we muscled up enough to do. Done through our own strength, these are the works of God in us. His good work in us. Those who believe in Him, in Christ, who are united to Christ. What do they do? You find yourself beginning to live a life in the light. And you may wonder, well, I, I think I struggle to do that. Do, do I do that enough? Do I walk enough in the light? Am I really in the light? Shouldn't be surprising that the Apostle John has a lot to say about this in his first epistle. He says this. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light and he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And if we stop there, this could be some very difficult news for us, couldn't it? Because it would be about our efforts and, and what we got to do. But what do we instead learn? What does he go on to say? We have fellowship with, with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. What does it look like to live in the light? It doesn't look like living as perfect people, does it? In fact, John, what does John say about that? If you say you're a perfect person, what does he say? He says you're lying. Not only that, you make God a liar, he says, and his word is not in us. So what does living in the life light look like? It doesn't look like living as perfect people. It looks like living as people who are perfectly Forgiven. Do you understand the difference? There's a big difference there. There's a big difference between living as perfect people and living as those who are perfectly forgiven, those who are not condemned, those who know the good news that God so loved us. And we begin to, 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 to live out of that. We, we, we love, as John says elsewhere, we love because he first loved us. 
There's, there's a natural consequence to being perfectly forgiven. We find ourselves living more and more in the light. Seeing these good works carried out in God, living life in the light. Now, some of you have heard this story before. It was once a wealthy man and his wife had died. He had one son. He invested his wealth in some of the great art pieces of the world. Picasso, Van Gogh, Monet, Rembrandt. I mean, he had everything. His country was at war, and he sent his, his son went off to war, and soon word came back that he was missing in action, and then not too long later that his son had died while he was trying to save another. This, of course, put this old man into, into a great depression. Christmas morning, his, his, somebody knocked at his door, and he went, and he answered it, and there was a young soldier at the door with a large package. And he says, I was, I was a friend of your son's. In fact, I was the one he was rescuing when he died. May I come in and just have a few moments with you? He came in, and he said, you know, one of the things your, your, your son said, he talked about how much you love, love art. And so I have something that I want to give you. He says, I'm a bit of an artist myself. And he gave him a portrait of his son. And of course, the, the father was a lady. It wasn't a great masterpiece by any stretch of the imagination. There could be far greater portraits than this one. But the father put it in, in that wonderful place right over the mantle. The prized place of all, all, all this artwork he has. Where does he put it? He puts it over, over the mantle only a few months or so later that the old man, the old father gets sick and he dies. He has no heirs. All of his stuff is put up for auction according to his will. And everybody gathers, everybody, the art world's excited, right? The opportunity to buy some of these works from the greats. And the first one up on the auction block is the picture, the portrait of the son. And the auctioneer says, who will have an opening bid of $100? And, and people begin to say, who cares? What, what is it? Nobody wants that. The auctioneer says, who will take the sun? And there was a friend of the old man in the back of the room spoke up and he said, will you take $10? That's all I have. I knew the boy, so I'd like to have it. I have $10. Will anyone go higher? Going once, going twice, gone. The yeah, well, fell, everyone got all excited because now we can move on. And then the auctioneer, of course, he announced that the auction was over. What do you mean it's over? Everybody, you know, it's like he's about to have a ride on his hands. And the auctioneer replied, very simple. According to the will of the Father, Whoever takes the sun gets it all. Whoever takes the sun gets it all. The man who only had $10 in his pocket gets to take it all. All of these wonderful works because he who gets the sun gets it all. 
you today. Know the incredible love of the Father in sending His Son. Do you understand how incredible that is? Do you know the incredible and awesome love of the Son willingly giving Himself? Do you know the incredible and awesome love of the Holy Spirit in applying that work to your life? Do, do, do you know? Do you know and do you see how all of this is a reminder to us today of how desperate of a situation we were in? How desperately all of us in this room needed a Savior. None of us are good enough. None of us. None of us. All condemned. Except for Christ. And John is telling us today, if you'll take the Son, you get everything. Take the Son, you'll get everything. Whoever believes in Him, whoever believes in Christ, should not perish, but have eternal life. And as John says in his first epistle, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Taking our sins upon him. Do you know this incredible love? Do you know that in him we get everything? Do you know the wonder of his love? For God so loved the world. So loved the world that he gave His only Son. That whoever believes in Him should not perish. But have eternal life. You know the incredible good news this day of the love of the Father. And of the Son. And of the Holy Spirit. Do you know it this day? Father, your love for us is astounding. It's amazing. It's in many ways, oh Father, unthinkable that you could love us, that you could love this world in such an incredible way. We thank you for a love so great that you sent your only Son. That we who are rightfully condemned could be forgiven, washed clean. We who are so prone to live in the darkness couldn't live in the light. Thank you this day for the good news of your love. I pray we've heard it today. I pray we are left in wonder that you could love 
love us. We pray all of this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.